0: In churches, maybe it's just rhetoric, sometimes it's, the, uh, it's just kind of assumed, uh, but we spend our time uh, in worship, then we stop worship, and then we listen to the preaching. Um, but I don't know if you thought about it, but what an incredible thing it is that we worship a God who has promised to meet us here and to speak to us. And He speaks to us through His Word and through His Spirit's and even then using people as we consider what it is that he says here. And he's here, and he's present with us. And so when we come to this portion of our worship, we continue in worship, but in a different way. We honor God by recognizing, despite whoever it is that might be speaking, uh, weaknesses and errors, God speaks to us. And so with that understanding, let's open our Bibles to James chapter 1. As we come before our God listening for his voice to speak to us. The sake of context, and it's also easier in the paragraph, I'll read verse 12 and continue through verse 18. Hear the word of our God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we rightly offer you praise. Now, Lord, we offer you our ears, our minds, and our hearts. Speak to us, shape us, fill us, convict us, encourage us, renew us. Lord, may your word do the work that it is intended to do, the work that you have begun and that you have promised to continue. Shape us in mind and heart and life until we all reach full maturity in Christ to the praise and to the glory of your grace. This we pray, through Christ, in Christ, and because of Christ. Amen. The early 20th century humorist Will Rogers once quoted this. There are two great epics of the American culture. The first is the passing of the buffalo, and the second is the passing of the buck. Another person who was anonymous, kind of building on the ancient or old Enlightenment philosophers, uh, borrowing at least from them, said, uh, to err is human. To blame the divine is even more human. It's just part of the natural DNA that we have. It goes all the way back to the garden where after Adam and Eve fell and the Lord came to them and, and essentially said, what have you done? First he said, where are you? And Uh, And the conversation ensued, and Eve said, well, the serpent tempted me, and then Adam said, the woman, this woman you gave me, Lord, the one that you gave me is the one who enticed me to do this. In other words, Lord, yes, I did it, but ultimately it's your fault, because you're the one who provides, you're the one that brought the circumstances, and you know my frame, and you knew where I was, so everything ultimately is your fault, Lord. Lord. It's just part of the DNA that we have, our, our fallen spirituality, our spiritual DNA in a fallen world, is to recognize that we bear some responsibility, but ultimately, when that sense of responsibility seems too much for us to bear, when we don't want to do things that God wants us to do, it's God's fault to begin with, because he's the one that's all-powerful, he's the one that made us, and he's, he's the one that makes all circumstances. James, as he's writing, he's writing to a people who are experiencing some of those things that would tempt them to begin wondering, is it me or is it really, is it God? He's writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered around the Roman Empire. They've been scattered for various reasons, not the least of which is just the the, the persecution that has taken place Uh, that's often taken place in history for the Jewish people. And then in that period in time, as some of the Jewish people uh, began to become followers of Jesus Christ, there was a measure of persecution toward them all the more. And so they scattered into areas where it wasn't quite as intense. Nevertheless, they still experienced a sense of rejection. It was difficult for them to get a job. As a result of the rejection, many of them were experiencing uh, uh, um, poverty. Uh, They were just experiencing just hopelessness. And many of them were beginning to fall away. And while they were falling away, it's quite possible that James heard things coming back to him in Jerusalem, like, you know, it's just getting so hard. I began to wonder, does God really care? Where is he that all this stuff is going on and and beginning to to question God? Or perhaps other people were more inclined to say, well, we understand that, you know, we're part of a people we sin. I guess God has just lost his patience and he's angry with us and therefore we're experiencing all of these trials and difficulties and hardships. One of the things that's true and it's common then and it's common now is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of serious challenges, it's easy for us to blame God. And James understanding that uh, picks up here in the midst of talking about challenges and trials in life, because there is a definite connection between the challenges and trials and then temptations, temptation to try to figure out our own road, temptations to figure out what it takes in order to get accepted and be popular and, and get ahead, regardless of whether that's in line with what God wants for us or uh, we are just embracing, um, ignoring God. Uh, And God's standards entirely. And James is pretty clear here. He says that regardless of the sufferings that you have, regardless of the temptations that are before you, don't blame God. Theologian D.A. Carson says when we confess God's sovereignty, we must not misunderstand God's motives. In other words, there was a sense in which the people were correct. God is the God of all things. He is the one who created everything. He is the one that created everything simply by speaking them into existence. He is the one that set uh, life and and this earth and and the way things function in order. He was not surprised by the fall. In fact, the first response that he had was to promise the remedy and told us that he has not forsaken his people. Uh, But here's... The plan that he didn't give us every step, but he told us that one day he would provide a redeemer who would make all things right. As, as, uh, as Tolkien said, one day all things will, all, all you know, bad things will come undone or untrue. But we still left in the reality of this brokenness, not understanding exactly why God didn't just come in and snap and fingers and speak again and make all things right. Often forgetting for him to do that would mean to get rid of all that is wrong, which unfortunately for us is you and me and everybody else. And then starting all over, That's not the way that God chose to do that. And so it's perfectly appropriate. In fact, it's necessary for us to recognize whether things are going the way we think they ought to or whether things are not going that way. God is in control. And he, because he is God, has a right to do whatever he wants to do. And he, because he is God and because he's good, only does what is good and is right that brings glory to him and ultimately is of benefit and blessing to those who belong to him. And so James is very clear. He says in this passage, let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. The nature of God is that God is good and God himself tempts no one. And so then we have to now ask the next question. Well, if it's not God who is in control of all of these circumstances, and he is aware of our suffering, in fact, he's in control, and because we're already told God does test He tests his people for the purpose of purification, of strengthening, and of building until we all reach full maturity. If God is control of all of these things, but God's not responsible for temptations, then who is responsible for the temptations? And James says, to get the answer to that, go look in the nearest mirror. That the source of temptation is not the circumstances we find ourselves in. It is not originating, they are not originating in God who has created all things. That the source of temptation begins within us, each and every one of us. Now, the logic there is that we need to understand that though the circumstances are out there and though they may be trying and though they may be enticing, God has made us with an ability to be able to say no to those things. And even though in our broken nature, and our fallen nature, apart from God, we will ultimately choose anything other than God, when God has redeemed a people, when He is now at work within them, when they are, now have the Holy Spirit within, there is no temptation that we face, as Paul writes, that is not common to all people, and those who belong the Spirit to God, those who have the Spirit within them, have the ability to say no. And many times we do say no. Many times we see the temptations and we say no to that. We are on our guard, we are prepared, but sometimes temptations come and catch us at least initially unaware, and sometimes we know it right well what it is that we are doing. James is saying the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. It is our own desires. Again, let's listen to what James has to say in in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It's what's in here that makes something that is evil or contrary to what God would have us appealing to us or more appealing than godliness may be. And the language that James uses here is really subtle, but it is is graphic uh, in its own way uh, because he uses a language of, uh, of each person is is lured and enticed, or uh, as the NIV says, is is dragged away or or carried away. It's the language of fishing. Fishermen would understand that. Now, I've never been a fisherman. I've gone fishing. I've even caught fish before. I've gone deep sea fishing. I've caught fish, but more I get seasick. I've gone fishing on the shore and whatever, but it's not not a hobby that I've ever uh, really embraced um, but spending a lot of my adult life in the mountains of East Tennessee, there are many a times that I've seen uh, men and sometimes women standing in the middle of the, the still or the running waters of, of, a, of, a, of a, a river or of a, a large creek, just casting the line over and over and over again, and they're fly-fishing. And the language that James is using here really fits that whole idea of of fly fishing here because what the fisherman does when they are fly fishing is that they cast their line and then they drag it back and they cast the line, they drag it back. And the whole intent is for the bait or something to catch the attention of the fish and then the fish are lured along with it. They're enticed. There's something within the fish that says, whatever that is, I want that more than I want the security of being hiding under this rock. Whatever that is, I'm going to begin to pursue that. And so as the line is cast, uh, ultimately the, the best fly fishermen know where to cast that. And they drag and they draw the fish out until eventually the fish bites on the bait on the hook and then is really dragged away, no longer under their own control, but under control of the one who has enticed them. And it's not because there is something, there's a magnetic in this that, you know, you throw your line in and the fish are going to come. I know that because though I've not fished many times, I fished enough to know you don't always catch something. So it's not the bait. And James is saying that's what happens within each one of us. There is something that is attractive And yet there's something that is with us that is willing to forsake the safety and the security that God has provided for us, the comfort of living in line with God's way. And we want this thing. And we may not jump at first, but eventually as it's cast over and over and over again, it lures us out, it drags us on, and when we bite it, we are now no longer under our own control. We are under control of whatever it is that we have bitten into the source of our temptation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes how this takes place in his book called, that he titled, Temptation. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, Desire desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, our love of fame and power or greed or money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality only, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus arouses, envelops the mind and, and will of a man or woman in, in deepest darkness. The powers of clear disc- discrimination and of decision are taken from us the questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And is it really not permitted me, yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation to appease desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. In Bonhoeffer, which seems Part confession and part uh, you know, physician analyzing uh, those that he has encountered, and certainly in a very, uh, very ugly culture that he lived and served, has characterized it quite well. In fact, hitting a little bit too close, he, he describes how we are, lured, we're a- attracted to something, and then once desire has our attention. Uh, Coincidingly, God seems to be distant. We may know and we certainly would acknowledge God exists, but in that moment, God seems very, very far away. And the more intensely we are focused on whatever the object of our desire, the more God seems far away. And his voice is dulled, in our ears, and so as the Holy Spirit speaks and reminds us of what is good and what is right and what is noble and what is holy, it just seems to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher in our ears because we're so occupied with whatever it is that has our attention and now increasingly has our affection. And he describes rightly the rationalization that goes in our mind, although it sounds too familiar. uh, If you listen to the garden as to what the enemy once said, Did God really say this? Is that really what he means? After 2,000 years of church history, the one thing that the whole church historically has agreed on, but in this moment, maybe it's not true for me. We're not willing to go that far. Well, maybe, you know, the Bible is... of instruction, but it can't be a manual for every specific detail and circumstance. We're supposed to take the principles out of that, and so maybe in my circumstance these principles don't apply. The rationalization that is easier when God seems very, very distant. And James is serious about this because he doesn't just use the analogy that is consistent with fishing. He uses another analogy that we're familiar with. It's kind of uh, like the, uh, the language of, uh, and the imagery of pregnancy we see in verse 15. He says this, when desire, then desire when it has conceived. In other words, desire is at work within us. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, in other words, when sin is delivered, it brings forth death. And I think James uses these words in this imagery for us not to change gears from the imagery that he's using about the desire and being dragged along, uh, but to remind us of the inevitability, this is what happens. And pregnancy is to lead to, and conception leads to pregnancy. Pregnancy leads to the giving of the birth, and giving of birth leads to life. And, you know, and so James, using this language, is saying, look, this is not your, your situation. Your temptation is no different than anyone else's. This is the inevitable process, is when we give uh, desire reign in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds... It's going to give birth to sin, and sin itself is going leads to death because the wage of sin is death. And so James is very clear here. He's saying this is a matter for you and for me to recognize that the source of our problems is not God. It's not even Satan, it's not the world that is around us. The problem is within us because God has given us the ability to to say no to those things and to turn to godliness. We just don't, at least not always. And I think what James is getting at and what he's trying to encourage the believers then and the Lord through James to encourage believers today is this, that when we find ourselves in such times, when we find ourselves in the midst of temptation, when God seems to be a bit too far away, we need to recognize that. It's in those times that we would be wise to ask ourselves some questions. Not the questions that Bonhoeffer says that we are prone to ask, which is, did God really say this? But some other more helpful, more answerable questions such as this, is God really distant? The one who created everything and said that he is always present, is God, is God now violating his own promises that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you and I will not leave you as orphans Has God decided to go on vacation and to just be far, far away so that I don't really have the wisdom that I need in order to answer the, the, the question of whether this temptation is something that I should pursue? And so what James does is that he essentially points us to the very nature and the very character of God. He points the people back to that, people that are experiencing the temptation to fall away, the temptation to pursue something other than godliness. And so in these last verses, verses 16 through 18, it begs the question, what is God like? He's telling us that when we find ourselves in those circumstances, it is important that we remember God's goodness. And James says this, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creed. And so James is just giving a broad overview of the nature of God and what God has done and what God is doing. And God is ever-present and never changes. Circumstances don't change him. He is and he will always be the same. And so he is also faithful to his own promises. God is not only in his nature trustworthy, but he is good because he reminds us everything that is good. God created it. God provided it. And it's important that we understand that because a lot of times the desires that we have are good things, but they are out of accord with the way that we are to experience them. Known as the lust of the flesh. Lust is itself not a desire of a bad thing necessarily. It is a, a wrong appropriation, an inappropriate desire that is out of order that we want something that is just not right. It is the man who's happily married with, you know, two, three kids at home and an attractive single secretary who is vulnerable. That's a desire, but it's an inordinate desire. He already has a wife. Therefore, to desire to be in a relationship with another woman is not open to him. That desire is an inordinate desire. It's not the attraction of man to woman, woman to man. That's not a problem. The problem is the desire now reigns more than God's holiness, righteousness, and God's word. And in every one of our desires that leads us away from godliness, it's exactly that. Many of the things, they themselves are good because they're part of what God has given good. But we want it in our terms, in our ways, not God's. And James says, remember who God is. Remember that God in his very nature is good and what God has given. Everything good that you have, God has given that to you. And then he goes on and he talks about what God is is doing of his own will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, he didn't need to create humanity. God was perfectly self-sufficient in himself in the, the fellowship of the Trinity. but just because he wanted to, he he created man in order to have that relationship. And even when we were rebelled, even when we were unfaithful to him, he made a way to bring reconciliation and restoration. It was just, it was what God's nature, what what God wanted to do. And he brought it forth by the word of his truth. And and the, the purpose of that, that we should be a first fruits of his creature. In other words, that we're not only the apex of all of creation, those who uniquely were made after the image of God, but as he has redeemed to people who had rebelled against him, now we are a testimony to, entire, to the entire world of the nature of God being good and holy and gracious, who has even embraced broken, rebellious, wayward people like you, or like me, like all of us. He did it so that his grace would be demonstrated and people would stand in awe and long to be in fellowship with that God as well. And so James is very clear here. Temptations are inevitable. It's part of the broken world, but the temptation existed even before the world was broken. But the temptation is not the world, the temptation is not somebody else's fault. Giving in to temptation is roots within us when we desire something more than we desire God. And because that's the reality, when you and when I face temptation, we are never to be a people to say, God is tempting me. We'd rather recognize that God has made all things good, but we want what we want. And we need to recognize that while God does test us, it's for the purpose. We go through trials, we go through difficulties, and sometimes the circumstances of those are unjust or wrong or caused by either other people's sin or consequence of our, of our own sin. And God uses those things to purify us. To that which is not holy is eventually trips off and, we are strengthened in the process. God does bring tests, but God never tempts. Because temptation means to move us away, to lure us away from godliness, and that itself is evil. this says God is good in his own nature. He is not tempted to tempt. The tests we endure are not temptations. They are opportunities to rest on the grace of God that is at work within each one of us to recognize that no matter what it is that we face, he is faithful to his promises. We can say no. We can rest in his strength, his power. We can find wisdom in his word. And we can trust that he will never tempt us beyond our ability to say no. Our God is good. He is faithful. He alone is worthy of all of our desire. Father, we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you for James's directness. Because we all face temptation. Whether they come in times of trial or come in times of ease. Or they just come out of the, the selfishness of our own nature. But we all face temptations. And all of us, I suspect, understand what the the people that James originally wrote to were were feeling—that the pressures are just too great, or the appeal is just too magnetic—and therefore we are helpless. I pray, Lord, that in such times you would remind us that we may very well be helpless, but there is one who is within us who is greater than he who is in the world and he is at work. That We may say no to ungodliness and we may embrace and be embraced and rest in the power of your grace. Lord, keep this fresh on our minds. As many here are facing their own temptations, probably all. And even those who have the temptations under control at the moment. Tomorrow will be another day. And whether tomorrow or soon thereafter, each of us will face temptations that will either entice, or lure, or pressure us to think that we can't withstand. In those times, Lord, may we cling to your promise. May we be reminded of your goodness. May you enable us to stand strong. That we would be the first fruits. The evidence of your work. In a broke, broken and hopeless world. This we pray. In Christ and because of the promises that are found in him. Amen.